It's time for Cadillac On Call on News Radio 610 KONA. It's your chance to learn valuable health information right here in our community. Now, the host of Cadillac On Call, here's Jim Hall. Hello and welcome to Cadillac On Call presented by the Cadillac Foundation. We come on the air today amid a seemingly endless wave of COVID-19, placing tremendous strain on our health care system and making more vital the need to follow mitigation strategies to turn back the explosive rise in cases. Tonight we'll get the latest from the Benton Franklin Health District and check in at Catholic Regional Medical Center with one of Catholic's physician leaders on the current status of COVID. First, a first-hand accounting of what it's like working inside the walls of the hospital at Cadillac. We recently visited the Cadillac Emergency Department and Intensive Care Unit, where both have lately been hit very hard by the virus, and with most cases being patients who are unvaccinated. We'd like to share with you a perspective from Dr. Danny Gannam, an Intensive Care Unit Specialist, Dr. Brad Hunter, an Emergency Room Doctor, ER Nurse Danielle Gorton, an intensive care unit nurse, Nicole Aldos. We begin with Dr. Danny Gannam. You know, uh, we're so proud of our staff. We, um, we've, i tell you one thing, though, we're not prepared to a pandemic because it's not just physically tasking, it's emotionally tasking. And we have a solution for this pandemic, but not all people have chosen the, to take that pathway of the solution, and I mean the vaccine. So, it's, uh, you know, we have quite a, quite a bit of emotional abilities here, and we have um, a lot of stress on us, team-wise, everybody. The, this hospital uh, for the emergency department, Cadillac, because it's a major center, there's about 32 beds where we usually are seeing people. And there was a point um, within the last couple of weeks here where we had 25 beds filled with patients waiting for a bed to go upstairs. Those aren't all COVID, but the hospital is very full of COVID, and that's creating a problem where we're seeing sometimes only seven beds in this ER can see patients, which is why sometimes there's 30-person waits in the waiting room, um, which is why people who have real health problems that are not COVID are not getting seen. Um, I just wanted to kind of make sure everybody understands how big of a deal this is, how much it's in the community right now, and it's, it's making people really sick and it's killing people. Honestly, it's they need to keep in perspective. It, it could be them. It could be their neighbor. It could be their child. I mean, we're seeing kids that are sick now. And just remembering that, yeah, it does happen to you, and it, it, it happens to each of us. And so just considering that it's it's not just a random statistic. It's, it's out there in the community, and it's spreading quite rapidly, um, and you could be next. It's the small things, like your friends at work, your support network, just realizing that we all are experiencing the same things and we're here to uplift each other. And then it's the little things like training a new nurse or, um, you know, putting a smile on each other's faces that really just makes a difference. And then even the little things from the patients, just those little areas of like gratitude and, and appreciation, I think really make a difference. You know, the hospital doesn't run without our ancillary staff. You know, it's, it's environmental services who keep us clean and healthy by keeping our buildings clean and healthy, giving us safe places. Um, we really, we can't run without them. You know, we need nourishment for our patients to be able to heal without our kitchen. We can't do that. It's just, it's a huge, huge team effort. Pharmacy is crucial. You know, they are constantly up here helping us. Um, and our respiratory therapists, I feel like, are really our unsung heroes. Um, they're in the COVID patients probably as much as nursing. You know, they're constantly in rooms and they take, you know, eight, 10 patients 
Um, it's a pretty, pretty heavy load for them, but they've been phenomenal through, throughout all of this. I actually work in, in a bunch of different hospitals. I work down the coast in Oregon. I work in some urgent care over in Vancouver. I work in Dayton in a smaller community kind of here in, in Washington, and then also at Cadillac. So I'm seeing a lot of different hospitals. Cadillac is a hospital that, despite me living out of town part of the time, I continue to come back to because the care here is, is just it's exemplary. Uh, the staff here is very kind. They work very hard. Um, it's it's just a, a fantastic place. If you If you need care, I can't recommend Cadillac highly enough, and that's having had a, a lot of experience in a lot of different hospitals. All of our patients in the ICU on life support are not vaccinated, and the message is please get vaccinated. Again, our thanks to Drs. Ganim and Hunter, nurses Danielle Gorton and Nicole Aldas. Now, since we did those interviews, the strain on the ER at ICU and throughout the hospital has not let up as Cadillac continues to deal with record numbers of hospitalized COVID patients. What's the real-time status of COVID at Cadillac? Well, we're grateful to have with us tonight Dr. Rich Meadows, the Chief Medical Officer of Cadillac Clinic, and he's also a member of the Cadillac Leadership Team that is supporting the amazing caregivers on the job all day, every day, COVID and otherwise. Dr. Meadows, thanks so much for taking a few minutes of your time to be with us. An initial question you just heard uh, some of your colleagues. Uh, what's the current state of affairs at Cadillac? Yeah, thanks, Jim. Pleasure to be here. Well, it's uh, unfortunately, it's looking a lot like it has looked uh, the last few weeks. So we got about 30% of our hospital filled with patients with COVID. And uh, about 40% of our ICU is filled with patients with COVID. And as Dr. Gannon mentioned, uh, when you look at those people um, with COVID on the ventilator, none of them are vaccinated and just, uh, just a real shame, and I think it, uh, you know, it, it wears on people. What is the level of concern from your view as a physician leader? You heard Dr. Hunter describe what, that ha- what happens in the emergency department, because that's where he works, but it affects the entire flow of patients throughout the hospitals, right? Yeah, it does, yeah, and, and obviously very concerned about this. The, the issues that come up, you know, we have these COVID um, patients and they're sick. They need our ICU care to, to hopefully help them live. They don't all live. That's, that's also very sad. But they stay longer. You know, they're, they're sicker longer. They take up beds longer. It's hard to find a place to discharge them. And then other care ends up getting delayed. We have had a lot of surgical cases that we've had to make tough decisions on. And those patients end up uh, needing their surgeries delayed. Our team's working exceptionally hard evaluating those cases every single day and determining how many staff do we have? How much room is there in the ICU? What's the post-op care going to be for this patient? And, and do we have the ability to do their surgery? And has their surgery already been delayed? We, we don't want to delay surgeries twice, um, uh, but uh, we make every effort not to do that. And, of course, as you mentioned, you're part of a group that, that deals not only with the hospitalized physician or the, the, the physicians that work within the hospital setting, but those working in the outpatient setting. And then there's the whole, all of the hospital-focused people. It takes a real team to do this, but, but as you touched on, the fact that uh, these, these referrals that normally would come into the Tri-Cities to Cadillac, we can't even take them here in the Tri-Cities, let alone the burden of patients that the Tri-Cities presents. Yeah, there, there's a lot of impact there, uh, Jim, and I'm glad you brought that up. So, you know, in addition to planned surgical cases that we can't do, there's other admissions that normally would come our way from outside hospitals that we just don't have the ability to accept. 
And additionally, our own patients here in the Tri-Cities who, who need care and, and we run out of room and, and they have to be seen elsewhere. Maybe it's Spokane or Seattle or someplace else. And all of the impact that has to the families that then have to travel to be with their loved ones, the, the cost of transportation to get to those places, and, and the other impact to people who are not in the hospital, um, services getting delayed, you know, not having access to imaging or labs, other places where there's impacts there. It's felt everywhere. And before we go to a break, I'd like to get your take on Dr. Gannam mentioned, and we've we've well chronicled since this latest surge that the vast majority of COVID hospitalized patients, and especially those in the intensive care unit, are unvaccinated. As a physician leader, as a physician yourself, what's your take on that for someone that's still on the fence right now? Yeah. You know, listen, I know a lot of people are scared. There's a lot of information out there. You know, you can look on the Internet and kind of find whatever information you want to support your view of either getting vaccinated or not getting vaccinated. But the important numbers are the numbers that are sitting in front of us every day in in each community in this country. And that is that the people who are dying of COVID are largely unvaccinated. The people filling our ICUs and having to stay there for long periods of time are also unvaccinated. Uh, The vaccine, like any treatment, has the potential for side effects, but there have been many quality studies done. Those risk of side effects are very, very small, and they are certainly far less than the risk of COVID itself. We're visiting with Dr. Rich Meadows, the chief medical officer with Cadillac Clinic, which is the medical group side of Cadillac, part of a large team that has been working tirelessly to make sure our community is as best equipped to deal with what we're facing in the healthcare world currently. We'll be back with more of our time with Dr. Meadows right after this. You're listening to Cadillac On Call on 610 KONA. This program is not a substitute for direct consultation with your own health care provider. Always consult your health care provider for your specific condition, especially if you have or suspect you may have a medical problem. Now back to Cadillac On Call. Here again, Jim Hall. Welcome back to our program, continuing our discussion with Dr. Rich Meadows, the Chief Medical Officer at Cadillac Clinic. And I want to pull out another statistic before we uh, go back to Dr. Meadows, and that is the level of hospitalization comparatively to three months ago today to today. So on June 15th, there were 16 hospitalized patients at Cadillac. On September 15th, that number is in the mid-70s, and that's down from numbers that were in the low 80s over the past week. So, Dr. Meadows, I guess that stat alone, again, you talked about the fact that the vast majority of patients are unvaccinated. Um, The concern is high. But since you're still a practicing physician, I'd be curious of your viewpoint of what are you hearing from your patients when they come into your office, and what are you advising them who are vaccine hesitant? Yeah, thanks, Jim. I appreciate that. You know, um, like I referenced before, many people are just scared. They're not sure what to believe. They've heard a lot of conflicting information from conflicting sources, and they really don't know who to trust. Uh, many people still trust their healthcare care uh, providers, so I feel privileged that I have that opportunity to speak with them and, and hope that they trust what I have to say. I point them towards some of the data that you just talked about, you know, that there's nothing that tells a story like the local numbers. And when you look in our community and I can tell them, no, the patients we have, they're, they're really sick. And this is really the story that's happening there. They're not vaccinated. Uh, we're not getting bad admissions. We're not having people die of COVID if they are vaccinated. Uh, and those, those numbers seem to resonate the most with patients. But 
they have lots of questions. You know, they don't necessarily trust the drug companies who produce the vaccines. Maybe they don't trust the government. Um, there's other things out there. Maybe they have a story that they've heard that their cousin or a friend had some sort of reaction uh, to the vaccine. They don't necessarily have proof of these things, but those those stories register with them. So I'll often tell them about the sad stories of, unfortunately, patients that we've had that didn't make it, people who were, who were young, people who looked a lot like them, maybe had their same risk factors of uh, diabetes or being overweight or high blood pressure, and just talk to them as, as, as people. I think that's what registers the most with my patients. I'd be interested to know, too, this has been going for 17, 18 or long, months or longer. Have you had any interactions with patients who got COVID earlier on in the pandemic and are experiencing these, I guess they're calling long-haul syndromes, that they're still dealing with the after effects of their initial bout with COVID? Yeah, unfortunately so. And, and this probably doesn't get talked about enough. Um, I know people worry about, you know, maybe there's going to be some long-term effects of vaccines that show up down the road that we don't know about yet. But we already know about these long-term effects of COVID now. Um, as you stated, people have had some of these things for 18 months. I've had patients um, who got infected early in the pandemic um, and have had chronic fatigue ever since, and they just cannot get their energy back. Uh, people with underlying um, lung conditions, asthma, COPD, things like that, whose breathing just has not returned uh, back to normal. Some people complain of joint aches. Some people complain of memory problems. Uh, they're all out there, and these are all part of the, the long hauler or the long COVID uh, syndrome that we're learning uh, more about. It's it's certainly very real. We don't, uh, to date, have any real effective treatments for it, unfortunately. Uh, the most effective thing is, of course, preventing the infection to begin with by getting the vaccine, masking, social distancing, all the things we know about. Uh, the second most important thing, if, if that hasn't been done and people still end up getting the infection, is then trying to treat them with proven therapies as soon as possible once their infection has been discovered. And we'll get to that in a moment, and that's, I think, one of them is monoclonal antibodies. I had one more question relative to uh, people when they get COVID. Um, are you still advising your patients, or are you advising your patients, even though they may have gotten COVID, to still get the vaccine? And at what point would that be after they have gotten COVID? Yeah, that's a great question, Jim. Thanks for bringing that up. So the answer is absolutely yes. I'm still advising uh, getting the vaccine. The, the advice that uh, comes from the CDC and, and from other sources is that we should wait until those patients are out of their quarantine uh, for the time frame of getting the vaccine. So, you know, somewhere between the 10 to 20 day mark, depending on uh, how sick they were and, um, and their risk factors uh, for the infection. And then we want to make sure they're feeling up to it, you know, that they're feeling better. They've had at least a little bit of recovery, but, but really as soon as they're out of quarantine, it's safe for them to get that vaccine. And some recent studies have really shown some fantastic benefit from doing that. So we know that the vaccine is effective at preventing hospitalizations, death, ICU stays. We also know that people who have been infected, if they are fortunate enough to survive and they're fortunate enough not to have enduring symptoms, they're also going to get uh, some protection from that previous um, that previous infection, that some natural immunity that happens when you combine the immunity given by the vaccine and the immunity that comes from getting the infection, it turns out that people have about two and a half times the protection from future infections. And unfortunately, 
I think most of us in the medical community expect that there will be future variants of this disease. Now we're dealing with Delta. We don't know what the next bad mutation and variant will be, but we all anticipate that there likely is to be one. On the topic of monoclonal antibody treatment, at what point would a COVID patient get that? And I know uh, Catholic is doing everything it can to start offering it where appropriate. What's the latest there? Sure. It's a relatively new therapy, so uh, this has been under investigation since early on in the pandemic, and as more research has been done, uh, there's been a lot more confidence in the safety of this. So monoclonal antibodies are now available for treatment during the first 10 days of the infection, so from the time of symptom onset, having a positive test to confirm that this is COVID, we need to treat people within 10 days of that mark. The sooner in the course of the infection, uh, the more effective these monoclonal antibodies are, and these are basically an immune system booster, uh, similar to what a vaccine produces, but these are man-made in the lab, and we can inject them either by IV or uh, an injection below the skin. People who benefit the most from these are the people who are at the highest risk to be hospitalized. So risk factors like obesity, diabetes, chronic kidney disease, high blood pressure, uh, things that many, many patients um, have as risk factors, and uh, other conditions like immunosuppression, pregnancy, uh, et cetera, are things that would put people in the inclusion list uh, for this medication. It's not for people who have already become sick enough to be in the hospital. It does not help those people. So some exclusion criteria for this treatment are being in the hospital, uh, requiring additional oxygen compared to baseline. So if you never required oxygen and now your oxygen levels are low because of the COVID and the COVID pneumonia that comes with that, uh, unfortunately, we can't treat you with the monoclonal antibodies. And then people who are on chronic oxygen, if they are needing more oxygen than usual, we can't treat them either because the studies show that they don't uh, benefit from this as much and sometimes can actually do worse. I'd like to spend one minute, if I could, on another issue relative to when people should come to the ER. And I know that's a very delicate question because you, I'm, in most cases, want people to do that. But obviously, as we've heard, ERs are stressed to the limit. What's your advice on when people should seek care in an emergency room versus, say, in an urgent care or the like? Yeah, great. I'll, I'll, I'll sum it up the best I can. So the first thing I would say is separate from covid any of those things that we would have directed people to the ER for before, they still need to go. Uh, people still have heart attacks. People still have strokes. And if they're having those symptoms, we still want them to call 911. We still want them to get to our emergency departments where we can deliver them the very best care. The, the aspect of COVID and, and where to go, um, I'll point to this. If people are feeling very, very sick and they're short of breath, they need to be in the emergency department. That's the best place for them to be evaluated. If they have milder symptoms of COVID and they're not to that point of, of being feeling overly sick and being short of breath, they can present to another place. They can go to an urgent care. They can go to an express care. That's a, that's a, a slightly lower level of care that we offer at Cadillac. Or they can call their primary care provider and get advice uh, specifically to their condition. The more risk factors you have, the more you should consider about being seen in the emergency department. The sicker you are, the closer to the emergency department. If you're relatively healthy, symptoms are mild, present to one of our other places or ask your PCP for advice. And I'm going to give you about 20 seconds, if you would, to just sum all your view up as, as we're sitting here in mid-September of 2021. Yeah, you know, we have the tools that we need to really hold this disease at bay and get back to more normal life. 
We need people to get vaccinated. If you're concerned, talk to your healthcare provider, someone you trust. And we have other therapies now that we can treat people who are early in the infection, the monoclonal antibodies. Seek care if you're sick. Always reach out for medical advice. Thanks so much, Dr. Rich Meadows, the Chief Medical Officer at Cadillac Clinic. Wonderful advice, and we should all take it to heart. Back with the second half of Cadillac on Call right after this. You're listening to Cadillac on Call on 610 KONA. This program provides general information only. Any comments or information presented are strictly for educational purposes. Cadillac and 610 KONA do not endorse any of the suggestions made by the presenter or callers. Now back to Cadillac on Call. Once again, Jim Hall. Welcome back to the program, Cadillac on Call, presented by the Cadillac Foundation, and we're happy to welcome to the program Heather Hill with the Benton Franklin Health District. And Heather, uh, you heard Dr. Meadows talk uh, this perspective from a practicing physician, a physician leader, the hospital situation, just the overall situation as it pertains to Cadillac. What's the community-wide, the Benton Franklin Health District view as we're speaking tonight? Well, Tim, I'd have to say it really does align with what Dr. Meadows was saying. We're certainly seeing the the community aspect of it. He is seeing the acute care and the medical aspect of it right there in the facility and and the clinics. But we, our job is to look at the community as a whole, and what we're seeing in the community continues to have us extremely concerned. Um, yes, we're seeing a little increase in vaccination rates. But it's when I look at, at the data and, and who is getting infected and the age of the infected, that's what really has us concerned. And then adding to that, our death rate has significantly jumped in the month of September, and, and we're only halfway through the month, and this is the highest death rate we have had yet in the pandemic, and we still have the rest of September to go. So, you know, what's happening in the community directly affects what is happening in our acute care facilities. And it's not just the acute care facilities here in um, Tri-Cities. I know we focus a lot on Cadillac, but we know all the other hospitals are struggling as well. Our hospitals in neighboring communities such as Yakima and Walla Walla, they too, in, in our calls with them, are struggling just very badly with high case rates, high admissions, and it's hitting the staff very hard, so sometimes it's just very difficult to get staff to take care of the patients. So, you know, again, we've trained for these over the years in our tabletop exercises for, you know, future pandemics. And I don't think any of us doing those tabletop exercises expected that 19 months into a pandemic, we would be facing the tragedies that we are in this community. And... Um, Unfortunately, I think we're going to continue to see these numbers um, not trend like like we need them to for some time now. You know, and I go back over that 19 months when there it used to be, okay, there were cases, and early on it hit the elderly population, and deaths related to that hit that population harder, but they weren't, uh, relatively speaking, to the number of cases. But now it seems like the larger percentage of the vaccinated earlier on, that elderly population, but yet now we're seeing increased deaths, so I'm guessing that's within a younger population, right? So those deaths that you're talking about aren't just uh, speaking to the, the 60 and older population. 
No, we're we're now seeing it in that 30, 40, 50 year old population, and and these are really people who had so much of the rest of their life ahead of them. And like Dr. Meadows said, data is very clear. These are unvaccinated people. And I think the tragedy that I deal with is the fact that, that their life didn't have to end this way. A vaccination could have totally changed the outcome for them. And how many times I've heard stories where people get to the hospital, they're very ill, it's not looking good for them, and they, they say, I wish somebody had told me to get a vaccination. Well, you know, I'm telling you right now, if you're not vaccinated, please get a vaccination because it's hitting our community, our families, our friends extremely hard. And honestly, a vaccination is truly the difference between life and death in, with, this, with this virus. So where are we? School is back in session, and we know that under 12 students uh, cannot get vaccinated. High school uh, kids can. Um, are we seeing increasing cases in, the, in that respect among our school population? Yeah, we're definitely seeing an increase in that 5- to 14-year-old age group. It is, it is significantly increasing, which we've kind of expected it to do. Um, our 15- to 39-year-old account for the biggest source of spread, um, and honestly, the greatest uh, population to impact with vaccinations because they can get vaccinated. The, the good news is, as we work very, very closely with our school districts, which we've had um, weekly and even sometimes more often meetings with our school leadership to help guide them through this pandemic. And then we do all the contact tracing. We work with the schools regarding how the infections are happening in their school. And we can really see that the schools that have those good mitigation strategies in effect, we're not seeing classroom spread. So the very few times that we might be seeing what would be considered an outbreak at a school is most often in the adults who are not in the classroom setting. And so that is a testament to how good the mitigation strategies do work, the mask, the social distancing, the good hygiene. We're just not at this point seeing outbreaks happening because of classroom spread, and that's good. But I think you, the point you have shared with me in the past, and it relates back again to the vaccine, so if there are unvaccinated school workers or there are family members who are unvaccinated and their kids get exposed and bring it into the school, that doesn't help, right? Right. And and that's the, the concern is especially when we're dealing with a, a population of students who right now cannot get the vaccine, they're extremely vulnerable. And they're vulnerable to typically what they get exposed to in their personal life, their their life away from the school setting. But they catch it at home, they catch it in their off hours, but they get sick and then there's that risk of bringing it to that unvaccinated person, an adult who could be vaccinated in the school setting and then they become sick. You know, again, the good news is we're not seeing transmission yet within the classroom setting. So, you know, we, we want people to use all the mitigation strategies because it honestly takes every single strategy in place to beat this virus. Um, so it's not just masking. It's not just social distancing. It's adding that vaccine as added protection as well. 
And I think until we get that firmly implanted in our community, we're going to continue to struggle with this virus. Quick question before we go to the break, and that's relative to testing. The CBC testing site out near Columbia Basin College continues to be in operation. I know you've moved the Richland site that has been opened this week down to the location, kitty corner from the Richland Fire Department, where the old City Hall parking lot uh, still is, but the old where the old City Hall in Richland exists. So that two testing sites in the Tri-Cities for people. And what's your advice to people on when they should get tested? You need to get tested if you feel that you've been exposed. Certainly, you've had a known exposure. You also definitely need to get tested if you're symptomatic. So many people in the Tri-Cities are struggling with allergies anyways or effects of the smoke in the air. Don't assume that's what it is. It could definitely be COVID. And again, time and time again, a person will say, I just thought it was the smoke or I thought it was allergies. Lo and behold, you have COVID. And then that gives them the information they need to stay home, stay away from people, and to notify those close contacts that they've been exposed. And again, those two testing locations, the first one is out at Columbia Basin College, near Columbia Basin College on Argent, just uh, adjacent to the airport. And the second site is in Richland, which is located along... uh, George Washington Way, the old Richland City Hall property that is now vacant, but there's a parking lot with plenty of available parking space that you can do your testing. And for times uh, when those are available to be open, go to the Benton Franklin Health District's website at bfhd.wa.gov. We have a few more minutes with Heather Hill. We'll be back with that right after this. You're listening to Cadillac On Call on 610 KONA. This program is not a substitute for direct consultation with your own health care provider. Always consult your health care provider for your specific condition, especially if you have or suspect you may have a medical problem. Now back to Cadillac On Call. Here again, Jim Hall. Welcome back to the program, visiting with Heather Hill with the Benton Franklin Health District and giving you the very latest on the COVID-19 situation here in the Tri-Cities area. And Heather, let's uh, let's talk about uh, these mitigation strategies. We've touched on the importance of getting vaccinated if folks have not been vaccinated. And the one challenge that that presents is it's going to be about six weeks uh, at the best before someone is fully protected with a vaccine. So that being said, all these other mitigation strategies, I know there's a ma- manda- there's masks now required at large outdoor gatherings. Talk a little bit about why that is so important. And, it, and it's everything now from Seahawk football games, Cougar football games, uh, Mariner games, and I'm guessing high school football games if they get over, or any high school event, over 500 people. That's right. That came into effect this week, and it it really came out of the realization that as we were investigating cases, there were a fair number that their their greatest risk of exposure of where they caught the virus was actually at a large gathering in an outdoor event. And we've had conversations with a number of people who attended our local fair and and report that that was the most likely place that they caught the infection. So we know that it is happening, and it it makes sense to me because if you are sitting shoulder-to-shoulder-to-shoulder in a stadium or in an event with a lot of people, you're very close together, and indeed it's outdoors and the wind might be blowing, but these organisms that you're spewing out of your nose and your mouth – 
can easily transmit to the person beside you, in front of you, and infect them, and vice versa. So, again, we've seen evidence that these type of events can certainly be a risk for the spread of COVID, and the wise thing to do is to just have people put masks on while they're at these events, and let's see if we can decrease the risk of exposure. I think uh, wearing a mask sounds a lot better than, than canceling these events because this is who we are. We love going to these types of events. It's, it's part of the American tradition. And if simply putting a mask on allows us to join in these gatherings, then that's the right thing to do to protect each other. And I might mention, too, now these the college and pro sports franchises around the Northwest, they're requiring proof of vaccination or negative tests, so an added dimension for those venues. That's right, and I think we're going to see more and more of these requirements as we move further into um, you know, the various athletic seasons that we'll, we'll be seeing, whether it's professional or college season back and forth, um, I think we'll see more and more of these requests of the attendees. And I was going to say, I, I don't mean to go backwards, but I'm thinking if it was a year ago at this time and we were in the September time frame, you couldn't go to a Seahawk game. You couldn't go to a Cougar game. You couldn't go into a restaurant and eat and sit at a restaurant and and, and partake uh, with your friends or family. So I guess, and, and my understanding is our, our rates are probably worse today than they were a year ago. So is that kind of the point you're trying to make? We do not want to go there. No, we do not want to go backwards. And you are exactly right. Our case rates are worse now than they were a year ago. And we haven't gotten to the point where we're going to be restricted like we were a year ago. So what we need to do now is use the masks diligently, carefully, and the correct way over the nose, over the mouth, to stop the spread because we want to be able to enjoy all of these events. And honestly, the only way we're going to be able to do that is if we do the right thing, wear our masks, get our vaccinations, socially distance as much as possible. I've asked you this question from time to time over the past uh, 18 months or so and, and, and the decades of experience that you have in the public health space. Um, and I know you've already said many times you have never seen anything like this. Certainly we'll probably never see it again. But as you reflect and as you look forward, what is your public health highest level of concern right now of all the experience that you possess? I, I think, honestly, Jim, my, my highest level of concern is how many more people have to die, how many more people are not going to get vaccinated and end up dying. And if people would simply vaccinate, we could prevent a lot of pain, a lot of suffering, a lot of grief. In the world of public health, our job is prevention. And we want to make sure that we are giving the best prevention method, messages possible and science is proving that masks, social distancing, and this very, very safe vaccines that we have out on the market are the way that we're going to prevent people from dying from this. And I think that that is what is the biggest tragedy to me is, is the fear that this virus has caused, the disruption in family life this virus has caused, and we have such good vaccines that are very well proven. They've been, they've been studied, they've been tested, they've been 
out on the market for so long. No other vaccine has had this many people vaccinated in such a short period of time with very minimal side effects that were life-threatening. And if that's what it takes to stop your friends, your family, you from dying from a virus, then please get vaccinated. And we have maybe 30 seconds. I do want to have you touch on, uh, we're getting into the fall time period, and flu vaccine is uh, is coming on as well, right? So people uh, will start being able to, you're urging that, obviously, that's another priority. That is exactly, because we are heading into flu season. I know vaccines are arriving in our community. And the biggest question is, can I get my COVID shot and my flu shot at the same time? And the answer is absolutely yes. So make sure you get both on board. Heather Hill with the Benton Franklin Health District. Thanks as always so much for your time and uh, continued uh, perseverance to the team uh, throughout the public health sector. And uh, continue that same message to all of the healthcare and first responders in our region that continue to just uh, do amazing work in answering that call 24 7. 365. We're still right in the middle of this. And again, all of those mitigation strategies that have been discussed tonight, we ask you, we urge you, we implore you uh, to please follow them so we can all put this finally behind us once and for all. Thanks to our guests and thank you for listening. We appreciate it. We'll be back next week with another edition of Catholic on Call.